Um, my name is Doug Collins, and we are talking about the neglected tropical diseases using a case-based approach this afternoon. Um, I welcome your questions as we go. Um, I am from University of Cincinnati and am on the global health um, faculty there and teach family medicine residents there. I also work with refugee screening uh, and homeless populations in Cincinnati. Um, my wife and I worked in Cambodia from 20, uh, 2002 to 2011, um, nine years there with pioneers and team expansion. Um, and so some of these um, topics uh, are things I'm more familiar with, and most of them I am less familiar with, um, as you'll see. Um, any experts in the room on tropical disease or uh, however you would define that? ID docs, anything like that? Okay. Um, if you feel like you have experience on any of the cases and you want to chime in, go for it. Um, how many students uh, in the room? All right, lots of you. All right. How many um, practitioners, nurse practitioners, docs, pharmacists? All right. Um, how many nurses, MAs? Awesome. All right, so a little mix. Um, feel free to ask if I'm not hitting on. And what did I miss? Did I miss some other specialties, physical therapy, things like that, other ancillary providers? Got gotcha, you all. Paramedic. All right, awesome. So feel free to um, interrupt with questions if you um, have any. There's no, nothing for me to disclose, no financial relationships. Um, and I will not discuss any off-label use, although for a lot of these WHO programs, these are not uh, FDA-approved uh, necessarily in the U.S. The objectives of um, this time is we're going to list and categorize the NTDs, neglected tropical diseases. We're going to describe their burden um, describe the key features of some of them using cases, and those are the tool-ready NTDs. We don't have time to cover them all. I'm going to define what control, elimination, and eradication is as it applies to NTD programs, and then we'll wrap up with looking at um, some of the tool-ready programs and mass drug administration um, regarding the NTDs. So let's jump in. Jose is a six-and-a-half-year-old Honduran boy brought in for a checkup at a clinic in Intibuca. Mom is concerned because Jose seems more tired than typical for him over the last six months. He has occasional abdominal pain and also has had a few intermittent bouts of diarrhea and constipation. Um, he otherwise has normal stools. He was hospitalized at the age of six months for pneumonia. He has an occasional cough, no fevers. His past medical history has otherwise been pretty healthy. He's gotten his standard vaccinations through the uh, EPI Plus program in Honduras and his social history, um, his mom and dad are rural farmers. He's got a number of siblings, and there's sometimes not enough money to buy food. On our physical exam, his height is 108 centimeters and weight is 17 kilograms, and that gives him a height for age Z-score of negative 2.13 and a weight for age Z-score of negative 1.88, and his BMI would be in the 26th percentile there. He's uh, sitting on mom's lap. He's alert. He, um, they are a poor-appearing family. He's barefoot. His hair is thin but normal in color. His conjunctiva appear mildly pale. His abdomen slightly distended but non-tender. And the rest of the exam is unremarkable. A hematocrit reveals moderate anemia. All right. Just threw a lot of details at you. Um, take a look at that case. And what do you think is going on with Jose? And what would you do? Any thoughts from any brave souls? Intestinal parasites, I've heard. Any other thoughts? You guys agree? All right. And how do you, what do you think about his Z-score? Is that normal, abnormal, the height for age? Abnormal. So that, and that would suggest what condition? 
chronic malnutrition manifested by stunting. Okay, so he's below the negative two uh, standard deviations uh, below average for his um, age. So um, that is, and by the way, there's an app. You can, get w, you can go to WHO um, growth chart and get an app that will give you Z-scores on people. I don't think it's a WHO app, but that's what they use. All right, and so Jose had hookworm. And so we're going to talk briefly about hookworm. That was the anemia was the hint at that, um, although other worms can cause anemia, such as whipworm, which we'll uh, talk about in a second. Hookworm in the NTDs is uh, grouped together with two others, roundworm, which is Ascaris, and whipworm. And those three together we call the soil-transmitted helminths, the STHs. So Jose has hookworm. The burden of hookworm worldwide is huge, um, second only to roundworm. Um, 740 million people infected. Roundworm's probably around a billion. Um, there are two main causes of hookworm. That uh, is Nicator americanus and Ancelostoma duodenale. So um, Nicator is uh, on the right here, and Nicator um, has cutting plates. Those are those two bulges in the mouth that you see on that picture, the upper right. Those are cutting plates that it bites into the intestines and over a, a long period of time causes anemia. Um, and Ancelostoma um, has fang mouth. I think that might be what Ancelostoma means, fang mouth. Um, it is sharper. It is more um, quick to cause anemia than um, the other. And so those cause anemia because they're draining blood at a rate that generally is faster than we replenish our iron. And so over time, you see these kids like Jose that have low hematocrits, and they didn't know it. Um, skin penetration, especially on the feet, is how we get hookworm. So the larvae, I think in the third stage, they're questing on grass blades. They're looking for people like Jose to walk by, and they can sense um, that person, and they get in, and that causes ground itch when they penetrate through the skin. Um, they can then cause pneumonitis, abdominal pain, anemia, um, Impaired cognitive development, so studies where hookworm burden is heavy show an average decrease in IQ of 10 points. So um, cognitive development is affected by hookworm. Um, they can also cause proteinemia. That can throw you off on weight for age uh, measurements because that can cause um, swelling, um, uh, anasarca even. Uh, diagnosis is with uh, ova and parasite testing. Um, the ova is on the right um, and then the treatment for hookworm is generally uh, albendazole is the preferred treatment, 400 milligrams, one tab, um, not 100% effective, but generally pretty effective. So albendazole is a benzmidazole, um, and those are a class that causes microtubule formation to not happen in the worm and also causes the worm to not get as much sugar, and so they die. Um, albendazole has a little bit better GI absorption and a little better tissue penetration, um, and it makes it a little more effective against hookworm. It's considered pregnancy category uh, C, but the WHO considers it safe in second and third trimester. Um, it is probably safe in first as well, but we don't know. Um, yes? Hey, uh, so I've had trouble getting albendazole. Yes. Uh, here. It, there's uh, methadazole? Yes. Pharmacists always recommend, is it as effective as this? Not for hookworm. It's significantly less effective. I think I have some numbers I can show you, and I'll show you a study at the end on mass drug administration as well. So let, that's a perfect question. Let me come back to that. Um, say again? 
Uh, depends. Actually, mebendazole for hook uh, for hookworm is um, probably still listed as one-day treatment, um, and it's not preferred. Um, for whipworm, it's a three-day treatment. Um, so um, another option for treatment is parental pamoate or oxental pamoate, um, and those uh, work in a different mechanism. I won't go into that, but maybe pairing these up is a better way to approach the group of the soil-transmitted helminths, and we'll come back to that topic. So for roundworm, um, that's ascariasis. That's a billion people worldwide that have this. Um, it can grow up to 40 centimeters long. It takes about 60 adults inside a human to cause small bowel obstruction, and that's one of the big concerns with it. Um, it likes the jejunum. Um, the adult inside, uh, this is fecal oral spread, so we ingest it um, from the stomach. We then cough it up. It gets to the lungs. It then finally gets to its form where it gets back to the intestine. won't go through the whole stages of that. Um, but it's the one worm that we can cough up at any time as well. So if someone tells you they coughed up a worm, uh, you're grossed out, and you know it was roundworm. Okay? Um, so that's roundworm. Um, the adult female lays around 200,000 eggs per day. And she lives around one to two years. So you can imagine the burden that people can develop and how obstruction is common. You can also get common bile duct obstruction with roundworm. Um, and uh, can sometimes see that finding with ultrasound. Um, treatment for roundworm, albendazole is excellent. Mebendazole is excellent, um, as opposed to mebendazole not being as good for hookworm. Whipworm is the third of the three. Um, also a huge burden, and relatively speaking, an increasingly big burden because albendazole and mebendazole have been good at um, dealing with the other two, uh, but they're not as good at this. So if you're only give, giving people a single, single tablet, you're, we're starting to see an epidemiologic shift where uh, kids still have whipworm because we haven't whipped it. All right? A little, little memory device for you. Um, so that is tricurus, and it's fecal-oral spread. Uh, much smaller, but it looks like a whip. And it's famous for liking the cecum, and it can cause such inflammation in the cecum that you can get rectal prolapse from it. Um, and you can Google that and see gross pictures. I don't recommend it. Um, <laughs> if you want to remember that, you can, remember, you can think of Indiana Jones holding his whip, and he has rectal prolapse. I don't know if that's a <laughs> helpful image to you. All right, so... Real quick, just a little about the eggs. Whipworm, you're not going to see the eggs as often on OMP, so you might miss it, um, the ovum parasites, but it's famous for the football shape and bipolar plug, uh, whereas uh, roundworm is famous for having a very thick wall. It's called a mammillated shell, and it makes it very hardy. It can live six years um, outside on soil, so uh, lasts a long time. So the treatment for whipworm, as I mentioned, you've got to hit it harder. So three days um, generally for that. Or ivermectin, uh, which we'll also comment on for some other diseases. And then I'll show you a study on the final option, which is oxantal pamoate with albendazole, single dose. So real quick, kind of off topic, big picture on the treatment of helminths. So the soil transmitted helminths are all nematodes and they are all generally treated with the benzmidazoles. Um, and so in general, if you're thinking roundworms, think treat with benzmidazoles. 
For the cestodes, the tapeworms, those also often are responsive to the albendazoles. And as a class, the trematodes, the flukes, generally are treated with praziquantel. There's a few exceptions. Um, I have those in blue up here. I've already gone over um, whipworm, trichuris. Strongyloides, you can think of as extra strong, so it needs something different, and that's ivermectin among the nematodes. And then praziquantel for all trematodes, most trematodes, uh, one of the big exceptions is fasciolopsis, which you treat with triclobendazole. So that introduces us to the NTDs, um, probably the most well-known of the whole gang. Um, previously, 17 disease groups as identified by the uh, WHO, but this past year they've added mycetoma and scabies to the list. Um, I saw scabies added through Lancet, and I can't find it in the WHO literature. I don't think they, they have that published yet on their website. Um, so there is some grouping of disease. For example, dengue is now grouped with chikungunya, but you'll, uh, in many lists you'll see dengue fever listed, but not with chikungunya. Um, it, the NTDs affect 1.4 to 2 billion people. They cause significant, often long-term disability, but they only cause around 500,000 deaths per year in the world. And because of that relatively low mortality number, they've been neglected. We haven't seen the burden that they cause. The burden that they cause is disproportionately affecting uh, the poor and children. It's worsened by poverty. Uh, it's worsened in impoverished areas and it creates poverty because productivity goes down, education goes down, kids are in pain. For whatever reason, they're not going to school and so that happens. They cause disfigurement. They can impair childhood growth uh, as we just talked about. And by the way, whipworm also can cause a reduction in cognitive function or a decreased IQ as well. Um, they can increase adverse outcomes in pregnancy and um, overall, I'll show you a map, they have a frequent overlapping distribution, as you would guess. Where you have one NTD, you usually have quite a few. Um, so that's an extra big burden. They got their name um, because they've generally been ignored. For example, the UN Millennium Development Goals didn't really mention them. They called them the other diseases. Um, but since 2008, they've really been gaining a lot of traction uh, as pharmacies have um, offered to donate toward mass drug administration, and we've uh, recognized by measuring disability instead of mortality the burden of these diseases. So the NTDs are now on the agenda of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So here's the list. Um, starting with the viruses, there's two groups, rabies and then dengue and chick. Bacteria, there's four, leprosy, trachoma, beruli ulcer, and yaws. Um, in the fungal category, and you might say this is a mixed uh, cause, is mycetoma. And in the protozoal category, you have leishmaniasis, uh, American trypanosomiasis, which is Chagas disease, and human African trypanosomiasis, which is African sleeping sickness. So those are the protozoa. And then the helminths, which we started with, the soil-transmitted helminths, grouped as one, the lymphatic filariasis, onchocerciasis, and those are the nematodes. And then the tapeworm cysticercosis, which uh, probably many of you are familiar with that, causing neurocysticercosis, which is the number one cause of seizures in the tropics uh, and in developing countries overall. And echinococcus. And then the trematodes, the flukes, schistosoma, uh, dracunculiasis, which is guinea worm, and fasciolysis, which is liver fluke. And then I have kind of in gray, because it still hasn't been confirmed, is uh, in the WHO um, 
literature that I've read is scabies. Does anyone know? If it, have they seen confirmation that this has been formally added? Okay. So here are the UN Millennium Development Goals, and number six was combat HIV, malaria, and other diseases. If you looked at the measurements that they measured for the Millennium Development Goals, the only measurements for other diseases were TB. There were no measurements for the NTDs, and a lot of funding, like the Global Fund, uh, went along with these goals, and so there wasn't the funding for it. Sustainable Development Goals, um, it is written now, and they're officially listed. They still have their name neglected. I think uh, they'll stick with that name probably because of um, how they present, but it's good to see that they're no longer being neglected. Um, I will neglect a few today because I don't have time to talk about them all. But um, Here's a um, chart from New England Journal that shows the burden of disease using DALIs, Disability Adjusted Life Years. And if you lump all the NTDs together, um, and there's a lot of um, debate about how much you stratify disability, but given the weights that they have, um, it ranks as more disabling than stroke, malaria, and TB. Um, so you can see that there's a huge burden caused by these 19 diseases. And that measurement was based on 17 um, here's a map that kind of shows that overlap I was talking about. So many of the regions with NTDs have m five or more NTDs. Those are the ones in orange. Huge burden in sub-Saharan Africa in particular. All right, let's do another case. Uh, we have a 38-year-old Chadian man who presents to you with a painful leg wound that started as a blister, that's the upper right, and then ulcerated, that's the lower right. What's your differential diagnosis for ulcers in the tropics? Um, throw some things out. What would you think of just ulcers in general? Dracunculiasis, so guinea worm. And you see a little bit of a strand maybe coming out of that, and that's also a hint. Good. Other ideas? Ulcers in the tropics. Leprosy. Filariasis. Um, certainly you could if there was enough damage from the edema, um, typically not on the shorter list of ulcers, the um, things presenting as ulcers. Cutaneous leishmaniasis. Cutaneous leishmaniasis, often a very clear kind of ulceration. Syphilis. And syphilis, yeah, painless ulcer. Good. So here's a list um, to add to those. Uh, Beruli ulcer is one of the NTDs, and there's a picture of Beruli ulcer on the right here. It is caused by Mycobacterium ulcerans. So that um, is similar um, to Mycobacterium TB uh, in some of its features, including how it's treated. It's treated with rifampin and streptomycin, which are drugs we use to treat TB. Um, Mycobacterium ulcerans has um, a toxin called mycolactone, and that causes it to undermine its own borders. And so it's kind of famous for having an ulcer with undermined borders. Um, so you might see that in certain areas of the world. It's usually in kids less than 15 years old. It can erode all the way to the bone, and it's generally painless. So I wanted to just briefly tell you about that one. TPU, tropical phagedenic ulcers, are much more common. They are not an NTD, but it's something that if you're working in the tropics to keep on your list, um, it's kind of this mix, bacterial, um, treponemal species sometimes, uh, and I don't have time to go into further detail, but just want to highlight that. Um, others causing ulcer, anthrax with its heaped up border, uh, cutaneous leishmaniasis, leprosy, 
Tickbite Eshgar. So the black, kind of the ulcer with the black. Has anyone ever seen Tickbite Eshgar? Okay, I got one yes. Yeah, so that's kind of a famous ulcer with the black top, the Tash Noir. Um, and then Dracunculiasis, which is rare, and yaws. Our case was Dracunculiasis. That's what the um, picture was that we showed you there. Um, in 1986, there were 3.5 million infections estimated of guinea worm disease. Uh, it has gone down dramatically. We are down to less than 22. Um, so 22 new cases in 2015. Um, I think their 2016 count is around maybe 15 right now or 13. It's coming down. Um, so this is probably the, um, God willing, the next uh, infection we will see eradicated. Um, and that should be uh, pretty soon. Uh, it's only remaining in South Sudan, Mali, Ethiopia, and Chad. Uh, it's caused by Dracunculus metanensis. And basically the story with this is um, that through... Um, water, uh, dirty water exposure, people would drink a flea, a water flea called Cyclops, and that flea has Dracunculus in it. And when the flea enters your GI tract, your stomach, the flea dies and um, the worm gets in, and then it slowly works its way to the skin. It releases lots of eggs through the ulceration, and after about a year, the adult then tries to get out, and that's when you start to see the String And basically, the only way to treat it is to get the adult out. So prevention is key. Um, and we are aiming for eradication. It's the, global, uh, it's the guinea worm eradication program that's being used. And the strategy is called WASH, which is water, sanitation, and hygiene. Great. So closing the wells, uh, yeah, great point. Um, they've also, another nuance is identifying dogs who are called peritonic hosts, um, and that's part of the eradication plan. And the Carter Center has been very instrumental in helping uh, toward this goal of eradication. So there's the life cycle and a picture of the, the water flea, um, and um, generally the famous pictures of winding that worm up slowly. And if you enter the uh, water or put your you, you know, uh, leg in warm water, um, I think that facilitates the worm coming out. All right. And there's the, um, just the measurement of the decrease in reported cases. You can follow this at the WHO. They have a, a map that's um, kind of live and, and updated daily. And that just shows the remaining red. The yellow are countries at pre-certification stage as being uh, eliminated. And so I've thrown out some terms, control, elimination, and eradication. I thought it might be helpful just to briefly review what those mean. In 1993, there was a big uh, international task force meeting to talk about what diseases can we eradicate? What should we be focused on eradicating? There had been some uh, aims you know, in, of, to eliminate or eradicate malaria that failed. Uh, yaws failed, yellow fever failed. And so they were looking at what are the features we need to look at. And out of that came a famous workshop called the Dalam Workshop, and they defined some terms. So control is the reduction to locally acceptable level with continued intervention. Um, so a little bit relative to what people consider that to be. Um, numbers are going to differ with each disease. 
Elimination is reduction of incidence to zero in a defined area with continued intervention. Okay? Um, and then eradication is a permanent reduction of worldwide incidence to zero with continued intervention no longer needed. Um, there would be one more term, which would be extinction. Um, for example, smallpox is eradicated, but it's not extinct because we still have some at the CDC, and I think they have some in Russia as well. So the current targets for eradication um, that are NTDs are guinea worm and yaws. Uh, polio is, as you guys know, targeted for eradication, but it's not an NTD. Um, for elimination, lymphatic filariasis, onchocerciasis, which is African river blindness, and trachoma. And then uh, for control is the soil transmitted helminths and schisto. Um, so this is just a little um, chart from the WHO NTD roadmap, and it kind of shows the year that um, different plans have been rolled out and approved by the uh, World Health Assembly, and most of those are elimination, a few are eradication, and then some are control, and um, those are the NTDs. All right. Another case, um, sticking with skin here. Um, this is an eight-year-old Sudanese boy who presents with multiple arm lesions in varying stages of healing or ongoing destruction, some with drainage. He lives in poor crowded conditions. He's somewhat malnourished, but in otherwise reasonably good health. Uh, what disease slated for eradication is this? I heard it, yaws. So we only, there were only two, right? We already covered guinea worms, so this is the other. This is what yaws. I've never seen yaws. Has anyone seen yaws? Never. Okay. Don't ever want to see it. Um, but thankfully, there's some good progress with yaws. Um, the WHO in May just declared India uh, yaws free. So they, they're, they've eliminated yaws, which is great news. Um, that's caused by a treponema species. Um, it was the first disease that we tried to eradicate back in the 1950s and failed. It primarily affects children in the tropics. Um, it's spread by person-to-person -person contact, skin contact, so you can see how crowding facilitates that, kind of like scabies. Um, multiple lesions that eat away the flesh, sometimes all the way to the bone. There are 13 countries where it's still endemic. Um, I mentioned the, what, the good news in India. And then the treatment, and this is interesting, the treatment is with azithromycin, high dose. Uh, so you pharmacists in the room will immediately notice that's a very high dose, um, up to two grams. Uh, but the reason I th think this is interesting is um, for years it's been penicillin injections. So suddenly you have an oral single-dose tab, and this is where mass drug administration can start to overlap treatments for these and is a very powerful tool. So it has now been designated in 2016 for eradication by 2020. Um, and those of you who know WHO and UN goals know that they can often be a little dreamy, but hopefully um, we'll get there. Uh, the Morgus strategy is based on the meeting they had in Switzerland uh, to determine that. The name of Yaws? I don't know. Anyone know where Yaws comes from? I don't know. If we have time afterwards, we'll look it up. That's a, or if someone wants to Google it, let us know. What's that? All right. Yes. All right. He's jumping the gun and he's right on. A 35-year-old Nigerian man presents with non-pitting edema of the right leg on physical exam. The remainder of the exam is normal. The patient states the problem has been present for over 20 years with gradual worsening and is bothersome but not painful. So I don't know if you guys heard him. What do you think it is? Elephantiasis. Elephantiasis. And technically... Um, that is correct because he's at the stage that's called elephantiasis. The disease is called lymphatic filariasis. 
Stage four is uh, elephantiasis. That's where you have the thickening and the mossy kind of appearance of the skin. Um, for 90% of the world, the cause of lymphatic filariasis is Wucheraria bancrofti. Uh, and then in Indonesia and Southeast Asia area, you can have um, lymphatic filariasis caused by Brugia, uh, Brugia malayi and Brugia timori. Uh, the vector in Asia is Culex mosquito. Does anyone know what that's a vector for also in Asia? One other disease. Uh, not Zika, good guess. It might be uh, 80s. 80s is the typical, but maybe in Asia, Kulex does. I, I don't know. I was thinking of Japanese encephalitis. Um, and then in Africa, the Anopheles tends to be the vector for lymphatic filariasis. Um, as far as epidemiology, 120 million people are infected. This, this is a huge problem. Um, a third of the people that are infected with it develop clinical symptoms. So there's acute symptoms that can happen, and those are generally local swelling. Um, there's a lymphangitis. Um, so AFL is acute filarial lymphangitis that can happen. And then ADLA is, um, I have it written down because I can never remember it, acute dermatolymphangioadenitis. Um, and that ADLA is dangerous because it usually means the skin is so broken down that people can get cellulitis and could become septic. Um, so those are the acute presentations that can be seen. Uh, and then the chronic famous presentations are lymphedema and probably even more prevalent is men with hydrocele. Um, women can get lymphedema in the breast as well from it. And then um, elephantiasis is that um, final stage. So how is lymphatic filariasis um, diagnosed? It's uh, famous for the midnight blood draw. Um, the microfilaria come into the blood at midnight, um, and so classically that's how it's been diagnosed. We now have um, some rapid testing, the BioOG4C3 antigen test, the ICT card, which are very helpful tools. Um, you can also test for antibody IgG, um, but remember for people that have had it in the past, you won't know if that's a new infection or not. So depending on your situation, if you're doing mass screening to see what the numbers are in a community versus trying to identify, say, a person who's immigrated to the U.S. Uh, versus a returning traveler, you might order a different test based on the needs there. And I won't get into the weeds on that. Um, treatment for LF is um, diethylcarbamazine. Did I say that right? I think I got that right. DEC. Um, and... DEC and ivermectin are both good at killing the adult, um, but not as good at killing the microfilaria. I hope I have that right. Um, out, whereas albendazole and doxy are better at killing the microfilaria. Um, and so often these are paired up to help um, the, not only the patient, but at the public health level. Um, so w one interesting discovery in the last 15 years, I think, is that um, this Worm, um, this worm, Wucheraria, depends on a bacteria called Wolbachia. So it's an endosymbiont bacteria that's part of the life of this worm. And so if you kill the bacteria with doxycycline with like a six to eight week course, you actually even further um, take care of the problem. And, and doxy apparently can also help with lymph flow a little better. So it's something to keep in mind. Um, I think that's all I'll say. At a program level, lymphatic filariasis is slated for elimination by 2020. Um, that's the global program to eliminate lymphatic filariasis.
prevention? Yeah, so the number one prevention is probably mosquito nets. So similar to, uh, so again, you can kind of see that power of the overlap, right? If you're using an insecticide treated net for Anopheles, for malaria, you're also protecting yourself from lymphatic filariasis. So it would be uh, insect bite prevention would be the main prevention. How long? It depends if it's mass drug administration. Um, you basically treat it, I think it's every one year or it might be every six months and you have to have five treatments. I think it's one year um, because of the life cycles and how that drug is working and that there are microfilaria not affected by some drugs and the adults affected by the other. So um, I think it's a five part treatment course uh, and the damage is usually permanent that's been done. And there's the map of lymphatic filariasis and where the burdens are. Um, we worked in Cambodia. Cambodia is in red because they've discontinued mass drug administration because the burden there now is so low. What's the rate in Haiti? I don't know offhand. It looks like it is endemic. I'm trying to remember I don't know the status of filariasis in Haiti. Does has anyone know? I'd have to look that up. All right, another case. A 10-year-old boy from Yemen presents complaining of pain with urination for six months. He also noted some blood at the end of voiding. He described a piece of meat following the blood associated with lower abdominal pain. Lifestyle includes frequent freshwater exposure. On physical exam, you have normal vital signs, some suprapubic tenderness, and otherwise a negative exam. What's the likely diagnosis? Yeah, schistosomiasis. So, and I've got up there hematuria and hepatomegaly. In this case, it's just hematuria. Uh, in Africa, you have schistosoma um, hematobium, and that is a huge burden uh, in Africa. Many consider it the second most important protozoa in the world as far as infectious burden, second only to malaria. Um, so a big, big burden, and it favors the urinary tract. And so the damage it causes is generally there. And so blood in the urine is a frequent presentation. Um, there are tons of other schistosoma species, uh, Japonicum, uh, Mekongi, and others. And many of the others affect the liver a lot more. Um, so the vector for schistosoma, which is also called Bilharzia, um, I think that's an African name. I'm not sure, though. Um, is this a certain type of snail. I think there's three species of this snail and they like warm, shallow, fresh water. It's generally still water. So a rapidly rushing river probably won't have the problems like a still place. Um, so uh, anyone know the Lake Victoria is kind of the famous lake that's teeming with um, schistosoma. Um, and those snails would be there. So 207 million people infected. Most are in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, acutely, schistosoma can cause a swimmer's itch, dermatitis. Um, so people go into this fresh water and can develop a local reaction from that. And then after the incubation um, period, which is fairly long, a newly exposed person can get a fever. Um, and so if they get this kind of antigen antibody reaction, it's like a serum sickness, they can get what we nickname Katayama fever. So if anyone's doing travel medicine, it's important to remember this on your short list, uh, or maybe it's a long list, of um, diseases that can appear in the returning traveler late after their return. 
right? So the viruses like dengue are going to be right away after returning or they happened while they're getting back, whereas malaria and schisto kind of are known for happening later, even beyond four weeks after return. But in someone that lives in an endemic area, they're not going to develop this fever when they, you know, um, if they're reinfected with schisto. The chronic diseases uh, is the big burden, and it can even cause bladder cancer. It's a squamous cell carcinoma different than the normal uroepithelial cell carcinoma of, of bladder cancer. Um, the other species of schistosoma that damage the liver call, cause fibrosis. Um, I remember seeing an 18-year-old girl with liver failure in Cambodia from schistosoma, um, Mekongi. Um, the diagnosis is... Um, is difficult. Um, the, you can do these SNPs with a Cato cat smear, but they can often miss it. Um, so generally, um, for people who have had it in the past, an ELISA test is the preferred test. And remember, schisto is a fluke, right? It's a trematode, and most trematodes are responsive to praziquantel. So that's the drug that's typically used, and you usually need to retreat then at eight weeks um, for schisto. Um, the life cycle of schisto is kind of interesting, and basically the um, myricidia infect the snail, and then the snail uh, hatches out, the, or they, they break out of the snail during the heat of the day, which is when, in a lot of cultures, that's when people are bathing, and so it kind of keeps it going. And what, what hatches out is this, it's kind of cool or sinister looking, um, circaria, that then can penetrate the skin. And it's a little bit like a lunar lander where the head pops off, it drops its tail, and it comes into you. So if it wasn't so uh, mean, it'd be kind of cool. Um, and just a sign uh, of two kids playing in the water where it says, <laughs> there is schisto here, danger. Um, so something being missed there. All right, another case. A 30-year-old woman is brought to your clinic in Nigeria with decreased visual acuity and a history of recurrent eye problems. On her physical exam, you see bilateral conjunctival scarring, eyelash entropion, the lashes are aimed in, and slight corneal scarring. What's your differential of blindness uh, in the tropics? Trachoma. trachoma, and that's what this looks like. So trachoma. Loa, loa. loa, loa. So a microfilaria, uh, filarial nematode. Any others? I heard someone else. Chlamydia. Good, so especially for neonates, right? Syphilis. Syphilis? I would guess so. I'm not positive, but we'll give it a thumbs up. Unless someone disagrees. Any others? Yeah, so newborn. Yes, vitamin A deficiency is huge in developing countries, right? And cataracts, yeah. So that's good. That's a big list. And cataracts is actually number one. So common things are common. Um, one other that happens on rivers in Africa, African river blindness. So how would you manage uh, this case of trachoma? Yeah, so the, the, the treatment for trachoma, if you knew they were newly infected, is azithromycin. If it looks like an ongoing infection, you could treat it. But the point is this is so far gone, surgery is also needed. And the corneal scarring, it's too late. Um, so there's our differential for blindness in um, worldwide, and cataracts accounts for 40%, uh, 46% and on down. Um, so trachoma and onco are at the bottom, 
And those are the leading infectious causes of blindness in the world. Uh, and those are both neglected tropical diseases. So, what's that? Uh, so that would be particularly with measles and vitamin A deficiency. Yeah. And we saw that thankfully decreasing in Cambodia when we were there. Um, a lot of work uh, through NGOs with that and through the government. Uh, trachoma is caused by chlamydia trachomatis. 21 million people actively infected in 2010. 3% or 3.6 I think we saw of blindness worldwide. Multiple reinfections in childhood. And so there's this process where you go from kind of a normal tarsal conjunctiva to inflammation, from inflammation to scarring. And there's these kind of classic letters for the staging. So TS would be trachomatous scarring. And shortly after that, you then that scarring is causing the entropion of the eyelashes and the trachiasis, which is the actual scratching of the cornea. And then you have corneal op opacity. So those are the stages. Um, and often it's fly related and dirty environment related. So kind of, uh, you know, could be uh, fecal hand um, or fly. So controlling the environment is a key part. So the key strategy for eliminating um, trachoma is called SAFE. It involves surgery for people who already have the problem. Antibiotics and the antibiotic is azithromycin. What was the other disease I already mentioned that had azithromycin? Guys remember? Yaws, yeah, so if you, you can imagine if you have an area where this is endemic and yaws is endemic, there's a good mass drug administration potential for that. Facial cleanliness and environmental improvements. Um, and then onchocerciasis um, was at the bottom of that list, still a significant burden. 37 million people are infected. 99% um, of those are in Africa, hence the name. Uh, it's caused by Onchocerca volvulus, and the vector is the black fly, Simulium damnosum. Sounds sinister, is sinister. Um, and interestingly, even though blindness is the main biggest disability, um, it also causes uh, destruction of skin. So it can cause hanging groin. It can cause leopard skin because it's destroying mel melanin. Um, and then nodules. So subcutaneous nodules and snipping those is one of the way, I think there's like six spots you're supposed to snip um, that are over bony prominences to diagnose it if you need to diagnose it. And then the treatment for onco is ivermectin. So let me just take a quick aside and mention that there's three nematodes that are called filarial diseases. Onchocerciasis, loa loa, and lymphatic filariasis. And these three are a little bit notorious for the way medications can interact if someone has one of the other diseases. So if you give diethylcarbamazine, DEC, to someone for their lymphatic filariasis, but they're living in an area that has loa loa, you can actually cause a bad enough inflammatory reaction um, that you can blind them or kill them with encephalitis. So there's some interaction anytime you're treating parasitic diseases that are in the central nervous system or in the eye, You've got to think twice before you give that because killing the worm might not be the best thing. Um, you might need to reduce the inflammation first or give a slower, longer course. Is this one of those? Um, so onco is one of those three, yes. And uh, another example, um, I'll probably trip on myself because I get confused with the direction of all three of these and the treatments. But basically, uh, for example, I think if you gave someone 
with onchocerciasis ivermectin, you can actually, if there's a heavy load, I think it's over like 5,000 per milliliter of loa loa in them, you can um, cause meningitis or meningoencephalitis. Um, and I might be tripping on the details there, but uh, the principle is the main thing, uh, most important thing to remember. So Latin America was very effective at eliminating uh, river blindness. They had a much less uh, significant load, but their program has been adopted in Africa and has been very successful. And so they're shrinking the map of onchocerciasis. But one of the hard things uh, with onchocerciasis is that the black fly likes to be blown around and it kind of migrates to new locations. And so it can be a little bit wily to pin it down. Um, I'm going to skip that for the sake of time. There's those three programs. And so we're going to wrap up here by talking about kind of the systematic approach then to all these tool-ready MTDs. So um, depending on how you count it and how you define tool-ready, there are generally six MTD groups, including the soil-transmitted helmets, um, that are ready to be controlled or eliminated or eradicated through mass drug administration and or other interventions. For example, we talked about uh, bed nets um, and, we, and then sanitation and the wash strategy. Um, and so these are um, diseases where drug companies have stepped up to bat, provided uh, significant commitments to give free medication for these mass drug administration programs. They're considered one of the best buys in public health with a low cost of about 10 to 50 cents per person per year uh, with the added benefit of helping treat or prevent several different diseases at once. So the six tool-ready ones we've talked about. Um, and on the, in the second to rightmost column, you see key strategies. So with guinea worm, we talked about WASH and the preventive strategy as, as being key and education. Um, lymphatic filariasis we talked about mass drug administration with DEC and or ivermectin and albendazole. Um, for the treatment of an individual, doxycycline is also something you would consider. For onchocerciasis, we talked about ivermectin. For schisto, praziquantel. For the soil transmitted helminths, we're back to albendazole. And for trachoma, the SAFE campaign. And we also talked about azithromycin, which also helps with yaws. So... At any, uh, in any given place, you can then come up with a plan based on burden of those diseases of whether you should have a mass drug administration program. And so uh, these are the, this is the long list of medications that have been um, donated with significantly long commitments. So, for example, albendazole, uh, uh, GlaxoSmithKline for lymphatic filariasis has donated an unlimited supply for as long as needed. Um, and then for soil transmitted helmets, they've agreed to provide up to 400 million doses per year uh, for school-aged children worldwide. So uh, it's a long list. Um, this comes from the WHO 2012 uh, NTD um, roadmap. Um, so if you put everything together, um, you then need to also ask how often would we need to treat these diseases for this to work as an effective strategy? So then you see with lymphatic filariasis, um, if we give ivermectin using a, a, a height pole, so you, um, you dose it based on height, and then you give that person a 400 milligram tablet of albendazole uh, in any area that have a, has a prevalence of infection of 1% or more once a year, that's considered an effective protocol for mass drug administration 
for that. And the guidelines um, are probably, uh, this is the most recent guideline I am finding is the preventive chemotherapy. Um, and this is just the helminths um, highlighted here. Actually, it's not because trachoma is there. So it appears in there, I guess, because it's all part of the program. Any questions about that table? I don't know if you guys can even see the once a year on the right. All right, so if we tie that then into an algorithm, um, basically you can go to this WHO manual, see what part of the, um, the world you're working in, and then determine what would our mass drug administration program look like. Um, so if you're in a lymphatic filariasis positive burden area, um, you start with this chart. Um, if there is onchocerciasis where you are working, you would follow down on your left. If there is schistosomiasis, you would again follow down on your left. And then if the soil transmitted helminth burden is high, you would then follow the leftmost protocol, which is keyed up here, and use those medicines. Now, this has jumped the gun a little bit um, as far as we are doing this, but there haven't been a lot of randomized controlled trials to see, you know, how effective is this? Is there any danger? Are we developing resistance? Um, there's a lot of concerns. Um, in general, it seems to be working very well, and I'll show you some data here in a second. Um, just to go into a little detail on the soil transmitted helmets, if you're living in a community with a very high burden, which they consider over 50% of school-aged children infected, you would give it twice a year. And then there's a list of additional people you would also give it to, including pregnant women in their second and third trimester. Uh, whereas if you're in a lower risk community, which is just under 50%, which is still a ton, it would be once a year. All right, so does it work? Um, here's an example. This is from JAMA. This is 2007, an article called Oral Drug Therapy for Multiple NTDs. And they basically were looking at um, right around the time that we were kind of rolling out and starting to fund NTDs a lot more. Is it effective? If so, what combinations are most effective? And is it safe? And, and basically, they demonstrated that it is very effective. Um, and they kind of started to look at what is most effective in that. So albendazole plus DEC decreased lymphatic filariasis uh, significantly. Um, and you see the number 16 down to 5%. That combination then also works to decrease hookworm down from 10 to 2, roundworm and whipworm. And then they're comparing that program with albendazole versus, uh, plus ivermectin. And you see the decrease uh, is generally similar, but that combo seemed to do better with hook, hookworm. So it just provides data to start designing programs better. Um, it's nothing that I want to go into detail on in this particular study, um, they found that albendazole alone performs similarly um, um, for hookworm, roundworm, and whipworm, but it just didn't work well enough with lymphatic filariasis, so that tells you kind of how to build that algorithm. And then with trachoma, we don't have randomized controlled trials. So that's the theory behind it. In reality, one of the biggest problems is delivery. It's, it's are people really taking them? And so here's one study that um, looked at just the uptake in s some villages in Uganda, the Moyo district. Has anyone worked in Uganda or familiar with this? So I don't know if you know where Moyo district is. I don't. But what's interesting here is you just see this variation from 2005 at the bottom, um, you know, just to take Olia West. In 2005, 30% uh, 
uh, reported uh, of the patients screened reported having taken the medication, the mass drug administration that was part of the program. In 2006, it was 50%. In 2007, it wasn't even reported as being distributed. In 2008, it was 90. So how well at the village level are these protocols being followed? And uh, in some sense, the devil's in the details. If we can really implement it, um, then it's probably very effective. But how well can we do that? Panjala, 95% in 2007, only 5% in 2008 is another example. Um, and just w another study um, regarding NTDs in children showed that um, for soil transmitted helminths for preschool children, only 38% uh, of the children uh, were reached with the treatment uh, and only 34% of the school age children were reached. So numbers that don't look good enough. So we need to be better at um, distributing and following through with MDA. Um, this study came out in 2014. Um, and this showed that oxantopamoate added to albendazole was significantly more effective um, for whipworm. Um, it had only mild side effects, so generally was superior and was considered safe. Um, here's the data from that study, the main findings. Um, you see a cure rate for uh, whipworm with the combination of albendazole and oxantopamoate of 31% versus albendazole alone, this is a single dose of only 2.6%. So if you give single dose to deworm someone and they have whipworm, you're not doing, you're not curing them, okay? Um, and then down below, the egg reduction rate, so thinking of the public health uh, benefit of MDA, the oxanopamoate plus albendazole reduces the egg uh, percentage by 96%, so very effective at the public health level. Albendazole, only 45%. So this will probably start sliding into some of the MDA protocols. I'm going to leave you with one last trial, and then we can take some questions, and that's the SHIFT trial. This is uh, 2015 from New England Journal. This was a neat study of three islands in Fiji. They had a very high burden of scabies. I think it was around 30% in the general population. But these are generally isolated islands, so they kind of have their built-in controlled study. of. Uh, but there were some people that kind of went outside the island sometimes, so it... You know, it's not a perfectly designed study, but it was uh, pretty clever. And they showed that instead of doing standard, of, uh, standard care for scabies, so we identify who has it, and those are the people that come to us uh, with the complaint, um, that decreased the prevalence from 36% to 18%. If they did mass drug administration with permethrin, the topical um, treatment that we use here in the U.S. for scabies, that decreased the prevalence from 41% on the, on the other island, to 15%, so kind of similar. So mass drug administration with permethrin almost works as well as treating the cases. But ivermectin, if you give one single tablet of ivermectin, and this is a one-year follow-up study, um, you reduce the burden on that island from 32% to 1.9%. So much, much better. A relative risk reduction of 94, a relative reduction of 94% instead of 50%. Uh, so I think we'll start seeing mass drug administration possibly in high burden areas for scabies. What's the dosing with ivermectin? Um, I, have, I have it in here. Or I can look at it afterwards. I don't remember the dosing of the ivermectin. Um, I think it's similar to uh, or the same as the dose for um, Onco, but I'm not sure. All right, so in summary, there are now 19 NTDs, including mycetoma and scabies. And remember, there's actually more than that if you don't group them together. 
Um, the clinical features that we reviewed today included the soil transmitted helminths, those three bad guys, um, the skin lesions, trachunculiasis, yaws, and beruli ulcer, blindness, trachoma and onchocerciasis, and others uh, that we didn't uh, have time for included Chagas and human African trypanosomiasis, but we did talk about schisto. Um, we talked about the tool-ready NTDs for control, elimination, or eradication, and then we just uh, now summarized some about mass drug administration. We have a few minutes left. Um, any questions? All right. Um, if you would like to email me or ask a question I didn't know the answer to, I'm at Cambo, C-A-M-B-O, as in Cambodia, CamboCollins at gmail.com, or you can come up and I'll give you a sticker um, and I'll try to look those things up because those are some great questions. Um, yeah, we'll post the slides as well, and I think the audio should be on the on the program. All right, thank you guys. <laughs>